Let's turn our Bibles now to Esther chapter 1. We'll finish Esther chapter 1 this morning. So we're getting through the whole first chapter in two sermons. You can tell already we're handling this a little differently than the book of Romans went. Uh, Someone asked me this morning, are you going to preach a hundred sermons through Esther like you did Romans? The answer is yes, we are. It'll take years. Let's stand together in honor of God's word now. We are picking up in verse 10. We are going all the way through the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. The book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, Carcass, and the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memukin the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and who sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king, Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the providences of King Ahasuerus for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it pleases the king... Let a royal order go out for him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may never be repealed. The Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all this kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we pray that by your word you would open our eyes to see rightly. You would grant to us by your spirit true understanding and true discernment that you would transform us more and more into the likeness of our Savior. I pray, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that those whose hearts are far from you would be called to draw near, would be summoned. Pray, Lord, that you would accomplish these things by your spirit. We know it is no work of man. 
I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can be seated. Well, if you missed last week, I do encourage you to listen to that sermon. You can find it on our website. You can find it uh, on YouTube. Because I spent some time giving an introduction to this book that we're going to be studying, the book of Esther, and and some important contextual information. Things like this. This story takes place in Persia, formerly the Babylonian Empire. And so we, we know right from the start of this story that any Jew we encounter in this story is, in a sense, unfaithful already. Is, in a sense, living in, a, in, in sin already. For, for five decades now, any Jews we encounter in this story have been rejecting the call of God to return to Israel. King Cyrus... And later his son, King Ahasuerus, that we see in this story, or as we most commonly know him by his Greek name, which is a lot easier to say, Xerxes. But both of these kings encouraged the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Encourage them, go back to your land, rebuild your temple, resume the worship of your God. And in fact, both Cyrus and Xerxes sent large sums of resources with the Jews. They sent resources to rebuild the temple. They sent uh, armed guards to to see them safe passage back to their own land. And so all the Jews that we encounter in the story of Esther have resisted that call to go back for five decades now. They have decided it's better for us to stay here in Babylon, which is now the Persian Empire, than it is to be under the direct theocracy of God in Jerusalem. We also emphasized some important biblical themes that we need to keep in mind. Some lenses that we we see this book through. First being the sovereignty of God. As God is sovereignly orchestrating all that takes place. In particular, God's providence. God's providence being his working out of his foreordained perfect plans through the seemingly normal everyday circumstances and decisions that people make. That's the providence of God, his directing of all things. We also talked about the point of the book of Esther, that God has eternal purposes that will stand. He is controlling all of history to accomplish his good plan. And secondly, he intends to use you to do it. He uses us. Men and women to accomplish these eternal plans. And so we are responsible for him for what we do and what we don't do. Also a reminder as we come into our passage today of of the context, the setting of the events that are going to happen that we saw last week. King Ahasuerus, again, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, same guy. He has thrown a massive party, an opulent party. Some of the most descriptive language in the whole Old Testament is, is describing this party that he throws, and he has been throwing it for 180 days straight. In fact, as we come to the events of our story, we're on day 187. He likely did so to prepare his military, which is the largest military in the world, for their failed invasion of the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was growing and growing and growing. Xerxes, as the, as the most powerful man in the world, was obsessed with them. He was obsessed with dominating them and defeating them. 
We also saw that this party takes place in the citadel of Susa. Susa is the capital city of Persia. And the citadel of Susa is this, this royal, royal garden. It's, it's behind the royal walls where the king and his administration live. It's the, it's the, the central royal part of the city. And after this six-month party that he hosted, this 180-day party, the king throws another week-long party. And this week-long party is specifically for the people that live there in the citadel of Susa, in the royal part of the city. It's in this fortified palace complex. It's probably a thank you to them. They have now hosted and worked pretty hard probably for this last 180 days with this massive crowd of people that has been there for this opulent party he has thrown. And so it's the conflict that we see in our passage today. It takes place at this party. It takes place on the last day, the final day of this second smaller party. And if you've ever been to a gathering at someone's house or a party where the host couple got in a fight, you know that that'll end a party pretty quick. And that's what happens with this party. The host couple gets in a fight. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, just to, to set our minds as we come to this passage, says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. What the, what the Apostle Paul is, is telling us there, if you surround yourself with sinners, if you immerse yourself in a culture of sin, don't be surprised when you start sinning as well. That is the way that it works. Paul says, wake up from your drunken, drunken stupor. In other words, stop sinning. Stop surrounding yourself with sin. And what we're going to see in our passage today is these people could have been well served if they had taken that advice. If they had used that advice. They are the very embodiment of that truism. Bad company ruins good morals. Xerxes was a fool. And Xerxes surrounded himself with fools. He should have lived soberly as is befitting a king, but instead his rule was marked by drunkenness. In fact, the Persians made all their major decisions drunk. And then they get together the next morning and talk about it. If they accidentally made a big decision sober, they would get drunk and discuss the matter again. Perhaps not the wisest way to rule the nation, but we wonder if that's actually what's going on in Washington <laughs> Instead of rational, sober, calculated, humble strength, his kingdom was marked by pride. His kingdom was marked, as we saw last week with some of the stories from, from his life, by irrational rage. And history tells us this eventually cost him his empire. So our passage today is a testament to the proverb we read in Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This, this proverb plays itself out in dramatic fashion in the life of King Ahasuerus. He has no fear of the Lord. He has gathered around himself advisors who have no fear of the Lord. And so their foolishness in this story is comical. In fact, it is, it is intentionally told to us in a mocking way. You, you don't have to be a prophet you don't even have to be particularly bright to see that this isn't going to go well. Let's have a drunken party for 27 straight weeks and then ask your wife to do something completely inappropriate and then make a binding, irrevocable, national, empire-wide law based on her response. 
Well, it's not rocket science to see that that's not a great idea. On its face, it is a stupid idea. It is foolishness. So as we come to our first verse of our passage today, verse 10, no one is surprised when we read these words. The heart of the king was merry with wine. In other words, the king was drunk. Six months and seven days into a drunken party, surprise, King Ahasuerus is drunk again. And he decides he wants all the men of the city to see his queen. He has been showing off his splendor, showing off his wealth, showing off his power for 187 days now. He has been basking in his own glory, reveling in the people's admiration and their no doubt jealousy of him and and the extent of his riches. And now on the final day of this lavish partying, he wants to show off one more prized possession. And so he calls for the queen. Now we know from verse 9, the last verse we looked at last week, that Queen Vashti, at this same time that he had this party was going on, she was hosting her own party. She gave a feast for the women of the palace. So Xerxes is giving a feast for the men of the palace compound. Xerxes is giving a feast for the women of the palace compound. And Vashti is a character in this story who never says a word. She never does anything. In fact, the only thing she does in this story is not do something. And yet she is, in some ways, one of the most important characters in the whole story. Her her banquet that she's throwing here, we don't see anything like this in Persian history. This This is a rare occasion that she would even be doing something like this. But it sets up this scenario for this conflict in this passage. And it is through all of this we see God's hand of providence at work. She decided to host a party. He decided to host a party. And that sets this whole scene up. So the king issues an order. He sends seven of his eunuchs. These are government officials. In verse 11 it says, Sends these eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. In order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was Lovely to look at. Her name itself tells us that. Vashti means desirable. It was probably an honorary title. As, as King Xerxes had a throne name of Ahasuerus, his wife, this wife, this wife in particular, was given the name Vashti, desirable. Perhaps she was his most beautiful of all his wives, of all his concubines. This was the prize jewel. The text tells us exactly why he sent for her. He wasn't just missing her. He wasn't just wanting her company. He wanted to show the men her beauty. It says to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. Now we know from history, Persian women didn't veil their faces. So as a queen of the kingdom, the people had seen her beauty. They knew what she looked like. They knew how beautiful she was. They already knew But an old Jewish commentary going back to the second century called a Midrash says that he wanted her to come display herself before the men wearing the crown jewels and wearing nothing else. The text doesn't tell us if that's what he's doing or not. The Greek historian just after this time, Herodotus, who writes much of Persia's history for us, wrote that the Persian culture was so Vile, so promiscuous, so perverse that it was very common for powerful, influential men to do exactly that. 
to parade their wives around unclothed in front of other powerful, influential men as sort of a way of inflaming in them envy and lust. It's sort of a way of showing them, look how big a deal I am. Just take a, take a look at my wife. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what's going on here. The text doesn't tell us that. We do know this. At the very least, his goal was to parade her around in front of these men as an object of desire and lust. The text does tell us that. It was to, to show her off in front of the drunken men of the city. So a wicked man wants a wicked thing at the cost of a woman made in the image of God. That's what we see going on in this story. The king wants this feast to end, this opulent feast where he's been showing off all the greatness of who he is. It's not fireworks he wants. He wants this feast to end with lust and envy. Again, a wicked man desires a wicked thing, and this will set the stage for God's glorious purposes to unfold. So so where did Xerxes get the desire to even come up with this idea? To to parade his wife around. Did God cause Xerxes to sin in order to accomplish his plan? Well, we remind ourselves of the word of James. James chapter 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, the sovereignty of God, one of the major themes of Esther, his providential work in all things. In all things, like like a godless empire ruling over the whole earth. That's God's providential rule, ordering things the way he wants them to. These things do not mean that God is the author of sin or that he tempts anyone to sin. He is sovereign over all things. He is bringing all things to pass, but he does not need to tempt anyone to sin, nor would he. People do evil things all by themselves according to their own evil desires. That's what James tells us. What they mean for evil, God means for good. James says each person is tempted and enticed when he's lured away by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so this is helpful for us to keep in mind with our own battle with sin. We do what we do because we want what we want. It's an old expression from the biblical counseling movement. We do what we do because we want what we want. And it is true in every case. What am I desiring that brought me here? When we find ourselves in sin, what brought me to this? What was I wanting? What was I desiring? How am I feeding those desires? What am I doing to resist those desires? What am I doing to to change my sinfully disordered desires so that I desire that which is righteous, which is godly, which is edifying, which is pure? We sin, friends, because we want to sin. You sin because you want to sin. We are tempted. We are enticed. We are lured away by our own desires. Now, is God orchestrating all things, including the events of your life? The answer biblically is yes. But as you look back on your life, 
as you look at all the sinning that you have done in your life, is there any sense at all? Is there any appearance whatsoever in your life that you were acting as some sort of robot? That God was just forcing you to do something against your will that you really didn't want to do, but he had, I guess, decided that you were going to do it. Is that how it's played out in your life? Well, no, of course not. You fed your desires. You meditated on your desires. You sought people out to encourage you in your desires. You tuned out the voices that called you out of those desires. And you listened to the voices that wanted you to feed those desires. You avoided your desires and your actions coming to light. You looked for opportunities to feed those desires. You weren't acting like a robot. You weren't being forced by God to do anything. Then when those desires were fully conceived, they brought forth sin. And sin always brings forth destruction and death. So God is sovereign, yes. You are a sinner by nature, yes. But you chose to sin according to your desires. You did what you did because you wanted what you wanted. So in the case of Xerxes, we see his wicked command... And we must evaluate what desires would bring forth such a command. What desires would lead a husband to want to parade his wife around through masses of drunken men as an object of lust and desire? Well, there are a couple possible answers to that, and none of them are good. Xerxes is not a man of high character. And lest we think that, oh man... So terrible, I'm glad it's not like that today. Just open your eyes the next time you're out in public. Open your eyes the next time you're on a beach and see how people's daughters and wives are dressed and tell me that they're any different whatsoever from this wicked man right here. So how does Vashti respond to this request? Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come to the king at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And we don't know why. We don't know why she refused to come. The text doesn't tell her. If you ask the really old Jewish rabbis, they'd say it's because she had a tail and she was embarrassed. I think we can definitively say that's not why. At the very least, he's asking her to do something that is beneath her station. He is treating her like a concubine. He's treating her like a prostitute. The queen's role, whatever it may be, it is certainly not to be the object of lust for all the drunken men of the city. So Vashti, we're not told why she responded, but she is being presented to us as something of a noble character here in her refusal. In contrast to her, we see King Xerxes who's being shown as weak and pathetic and a joke. He didn't just request his wife to come. Do you notice that? He commanded her to come. And he sent not one official, not three officials, not five officials. He sent seven of his officials to command his wife to come. And this one woman said to them, no. The truth is this, the most powerful people on our planet are still just men. Compared with their claims of grandeur, their claims of glory, they are revealed to be quite puny, quite pathetic. Unable to even manage their own homes most often. Look at some of the the, the leaders around the world and look at their children. 
They're most often unable to even manage their own homes, and yet they claim to be the most powerful people on earth. But any ruler on earth is only there because God put them there. And he put them there for his own purposes. And he will judge them for all the acts of wickedness that they commit. God always has the final say. And even the strongest earthly tyrants are going to melt before him like a little ice cube in a boiling pot of water. There's no contest. How does the king respond then to this conflict? He has summoned his wife to parade her in front of these men. She has refused to come. How does he respond to this conflict? Well, this is one of the greatest indicators of a man's actual character. How does he respond in the face of conflict? The truth is, when, it, when, it, when things are going your way, any man can seem to have good character. But what happens when conflict comes? What happens when pressure gets applied? That's the moment that the man's true character is revealed. What we see with Xerxes is this. His character is not good. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. He's a loose cannon. He has no control over his temper. As we saw last week, history bears that out with this man. He did ridiculous things in his fury. Godly anger, on the other hand, is described as slow to build. Calculated, controlled, but the king's anger is quick. It's unthinking. It is uncontrolled. Xerxes is a fool. But he is just a pawn in God's hand. God uses evil people like King Xerxes for his own glory. And for the good of his people. We will see that further throughout this story of Esther. God's using of even the wickedness of men for his own good glorious purposes. So what does this king's anger lead him to? Verses 13 and 14 tells us he gathered his wisest counselors around him. A different set of seven than this original seven that he sent out. Seven other men, the princes of Persia and Media. To no one's surprise, these men are just as big of fools as King Ahasuerus is. This is what fools do. They surround themselves with fools. Let me at this point just make a point of application here. Vashti's response to the foolish king's wicked command is refusal. Whatever her motives were, we're not told in the text, that is the appropriate response to wicked commands. Consider the foolishness of our own national leaders this month as we celebrate so-called Pride Month. The open promotion, the, the celebration of all kinds of evil, the, the kinds of shameful perversion, the, the kind of things that decent people shouldn't even think about, let alone talk about. These things are being placed in front of our eyes everywhere we turn, and they're being promoted to our children. The Department of Education this week had quite a post on social media that they made regarding their unbridled support for Pride Month. President Biden last year made a statement promising to take legal action against the state of Texas and its governor for opposing the vile and heinous child abuse of so-called gender-affirming care. 
Now, if you hear this expression, gender-affirming care, that sounds pretty good. We care for the children. What it really means is the mutilation of the healthy genitalia of boys and girls. Or at the very minimum, giving them hormone treatments, puberty blockers that will damage these children for the rest of their lives. Now, for almost all of human history, these kind of things have been universally condemned as the very epitome of evil. But the fools of this age call it love and care. This insanity is now considered wise. This evil is now considered good. This demonic perversion is now considered godly. And in his warning to the state of Texas, in his threat to the state of Texas, that's the language President Biden chose to use, that this is godliness. He says this, We respect the rights and dignity of all families. Transgender children bring fulfillment to their parents, joy to their friends, and are made in the image of God. Affirming a transgender child's identity is one of the best things a parent, teacher, or doctor can do to help keep the children from harm. Parents who love and affirm their children should be applauded and supported. As I told transgender Americans in my State of the Union address, I will always have your back as president. So you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. Jill and I are standing with the incredibly brave transgender children and their parents and family throughout Texas and around the country. We will continue to fight for a future where children can thrive. Now, if you listen close, you can hear the serpent's hiss behind that statement. Just because a child desires to play with a loaded gun doesn't mean it's wise or loving to let them do it. It is not permissible, it is not honorable, it is not noble, it is not loving to load the gun for the child. And then to hand it to them and say, do whatever your little heart tells you to do with this. That's not love, that's hate. It's wickedness. President Biden there in that statement identifies the source of his authority and he says it's from God. It's because they're made in the image of God that they should be affirmed in their transition. They're not transitioning, by the way. Those little boys will still be boys. They will just be mutilated little boys. Those little girls will not be little boys. They will just be mutilated little girls. But he says to do this for them, to to do this, abuse them in this way is going to help them reach their God-given potential. The audacity to say that out loud. These are demonic lies. They are the words of a godless fool. And they are attack on the very image of God. He's right, of course, that these kids are made in the image of God. In the sex that he created them. God made them with incredible dignity and value and worth. He made them male and female, and it was and it is good. But the president says we should have the right to mar and mutilate that image, not just in adults, but in kids too. And in fact, the whole point of that address to the state of Texas was this. It should be illegal to try to stop them from doing it. It's wickedness. 
abortion, transgender, LGBT laws, things like so-called same-sex marriage are nothing less than a demonic attack on the very image of God. And so any law that promotes transgenderism for anyone of any age, that promotes abortion at any stage of development, that promotes homosexuality, even if it has the yes and amen of the majority of citizens is inherently corrupt. It must be resisted. It must be rejected. It must be disregarded. It must be opposed. We must not submit to wicked, rebellious, evil laws. So we don't know what Vashti's motives were, but she was right. She was right to resist that wicked command. And brothers and sisters, we must actually love. We must prefer to be genuinely loving than to just appear to be loving. Unfortunately, most of of our culture would rather be hateful and thought of as loving than to be actually loving and called hateful. We must be those who actually love. Well, for for whatever reason, Vashti has said no to the king now. And so Xerxes gathers these seven wise men, fools, just like he is. And he asks them this in verse 15. According to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Not one of these supposedly wise men says, let's pump the brakes a little bit. You're drunk, for one. Let's just settle down. No one says... You know what you should do? You should go talk to your wife. You should hear her reasoning. You should hear what she's thinking. No, instead their response is laughably foolish. I'll summarize for the sake of time their response in verses 16 through 19. First they say, essentially Vashti has committed treason. That's what she's done by not coming. It's it's not just against the king here. It's against the whole empire that she has transgressed. Because, you know, all the women are going to hear about this. They're going to hold their husbands in contempt. There is going to be a feminist uprising this very day throughout the whole empire because your wife wouldn't come parade herself in front of us as an object of lust. How ridiculous can you get? But that's their, that's their fear. That's their warning. So then their advice is this. Send out an irrevocable royal order. Vashti is banished from the king's presence forever. I mean, that sounds a lot like our world right now. Cancel culture is not new. It's been going on all of these years. How fragile, how weak is this Persian empire? How fragile and weak are the ungodly, the unrighteous. Well, they're so fragile and weak that they must silence all dissent. We can't see you. We can't hear from you. Does that sound familiar? That's the fragility of godless culture. It's, it's driven by fear. It's held captive by fear. Vashti will never again come before the king. She's not going to be executed. She's not going to be thrown in prison. She'll, she'll likely be very well taken care of for the rest of her life in the royal harem. But her royal position is taken from her. She will never be treated like the queen again in her position as favored, desirable wife will be filled by someone else. Verse 20 then says, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed through all the kingdom, for it is vast, this is still the the advice of these seven idiots, 
All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukim proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So the advice is do this. Put her away forever and issue this proclamation. All women must give honor to their husbands. Now what what he means by honor is not what God means by honor. What he means is no woman is ever allowed under any circumstances whatsoever to ever say no to their husband, even if he's demanding something that is wicked or degrading. Well, this is for sure going to work, isn't it? Obviously, this is wonderful. Husbands, just print that on paper and hang it in various locations of the house. And when your wife gets a little sassy, you just point it to paper. Here it is. You're supposed to honor and respect me. It's in the Bible. Anyone who's been married more than a week knows that's not how it works. That is not the way it goes. You cannot legislate things like honor and respect. Is the wife to honor and respect her husband? Yes. We don't need these wicked men to tell us. God, who is righteous and holy and made us, tells us. But if you try to legislate that too, I I often tell couples, if you have to tell your wife that she needs to respect you, you have lost the battle long ago. And you've got issues in your life you need to address. And doubtless she does too. Women are capable of sinning. I don't know if anyone's ever been brave enough to tell you that before, but it's true. If you try to legislate this, here's what it produces. Contempt. That's the irony here. And this book is dripping with irony, the book of Esther, all the way through. But, but here we see it. The very thing Xerxes and his counselors are afraid of. This news is going to spread through the whole empire. There's going to be a feminist uprising of wives who hold their husbands in contempt. What is it that's going to accomplish all of that? It's this new law and proclamation that they're sending out. It's going to accomplish all the things they're afraid of. How's anybody ever going to find out about Vashti's refusal? This was the smaller gathering for the people who lived right there. We don't even know that it was public in the first place. We don't know if this happened very privately. They went and talked to her. Then they came back and told him. There was no social media. News did not exactly spread fast if it spread at all. Probably hardly anybody knew about it. The, The empire was not going to find out about this. Unless, of course, the idiots who are in charge of the government decide to tell everyone in their own language all the embarrassing details of the entire situation. And comically, that's exactly what they decide to do. This proclamation then reveals to the whole empire, it publicizes for the whole empire just how weak and pathetic Ahasuerus really is. The god king Xerxes can't even get his wife to come to his party. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. As we look at these men and their response to this situation, the, the, these same kind of godless, lust-driven, fear-filled men are still vainly shaking their fist in God's face today while proclaiming their own power and their own glory and their own greatness. And they reveal in themselves, in the final analysis, they are shown to be weak. 
and pathetic. Impotent fools. Irrational, effeminate men, emotional men and women with no self-control. Fools. Finding more fools to counsel them. State governments, national governments, assuming that more laws, more bureaucracy, more money spent, more fear is what the people need to keep them in line. All the while living for their own lusts and their desires. All the while living from their own pride of life. And we look at the world around us and we go, that is exactly the same thing that's going on. Lest that drive us to despair, saints, remember this. The empire of Persia is no more. Just like the empire of Babylon that came before it, just like the empire of Egypt that came before it, just like the empire of Rome that came after all of them, but you are here. We are here. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ stands and will stand such that not only no human empire will stand against it, the very gates of hell will fall before it. What was God's promise to Abraham? What was God's promise to Jacob? Offspring so numerous that they could not be counted. Paul in Romans, as we studied that book, told us who that offspring was. It's us. It's us. God is making a people for himself in Christ, his church, who are as numerous as the sands of the sea, as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And we will see him redeem and rescue his people, not only in our time, not only in history past, but even in the story of Esther. We will see him even rescue his people who have remained in Babylon. These unfaithful people. Not for their sake, but according to his own good purposes, for his name's sake, to fulfill his promises, he will do this. God God was sovereignly orchestrating all of these decisions, even according to the sinful desires of their heart. Though he tempted no one, though he forced no one to do anything. He let them do exactly what they wanted to do. He did pull his grace back that would reveal to them a glimmer of real wisdom. And he just let them go on in their foolishness. He sent them headlong into situations knowing that they would make grave and disastrous decisions in those things according with their own desires. Why would God do that? Why would God set them up for such a mighty fall? Well, it was for his own glory. And it was for the good of his people. Christian, it was for your sake. When you hear this disastrous story, this wicked man who desired wicked things, this wicked man whose own pride and foolishness and lust would destroy his empire. All of this was for our sake. The removal of Queen Vashti Sets the stage for Queen Esther. The appointing of Queen Esther, despite her own sinfulness, as we will see as we go through this story. Despite her uncle Mordecai's sinfulness. 
But it is through this that comes the the preservation of all the Jews in the known world and the, the further glory of God's great name and most importantly, the continuing hope in the promised Messiah who now has come. As we read the story of Esther, there's hope in a Messiah. He's never even mentioned in this book. They're that unfaithful. But the Messiah has come. The Messiah is reigning in glory. This is our story. This is what God has been directing all things in all of history and in our own lives in this direction to preserve us, his people, to keep us in Christ. And so have no fear when you look at the world around you. Have no fear when wicked men rise to power. Have no fear when those who claim to hold your lives in their hands, that they can do with you what they want, have no fear of them because they are nothing but smoke and mirrors. They've only got the power that God has given to them. They are accounted as nothing before him. And here's what we have been promised by the God who actually holds all things in his hand, who actually rules over all things and who actually accomplishes his own perfect will. Here's the promise. It is the righteous who will inherit the earth. The church cannot be stopped. The serpent is under Christ's foot. These are the unshakable, rock-solid promises given to us, his beloved people, by our God who rules over all things. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, even as we read a story like this, which is is frustrating on many levels and reveals to us the wickedness that is in the world, Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes to see Christ. Lord, as we see imperfect kings, we look to the one true king. Lord, as we see wickedness, we look to your righteousness and we long for your righteousness. We, we pray with the psalmist, as we heard early in the service today, that you would seek us, that you would find us, for we too have gone astray. We thank you, Lord, for your sure promise to complete the good work you've begun in us, to keep those who are yours in Christ. Lord, I pray by your spirit you would give us assurance of that salvation. You would bring to us conviction when we sin that we might quickly turn from sin and run to you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence in this world as we look at a world that, that seems to be falling apart, seems to have completely lost any sense of a moral compass, is living for its own lusts and desires, and even rational thought seems to be thrown out the window. Lord, that you would give us confidence that you reign and you rule and you are seated on the throne. And you would give us boldness to proclaim these truths, come what may, before the very gates of hell. We thank you, Lord, for the promised triumph of the church. We pray, Lord, that you would make us not only faithful ambassadors of your kingdom gospel, but as those through whom you work to put your enemies under your feet, to see the church stand strong in victory. Pray, God, that you would accomplish your eternal kingdom purposes in us and through us for your glory for your people's eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.